Yep. Can you hear me? There we go. Good. It's a pleasure and a blessing to be here with you all tonight. There are many familiar faces and some that I hope to become familiar with. And uh, I was asked a few weeks ago if I would want to do this, and I would love to be here. I'd let the brothers know that I'd love to be here. And since my interest, if you want to use that word, is in apologetics, I thought I would uh, speak tonight from the what's called the classic passage on apologetics, and that's 1 Peter 3, uh, 15 and 16. But we'll look at the whole context. If you'll turn to 1 Peter 3. I'm going to give the context by reading from 13 to 17. Reading from the ESV, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who reviled your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's bow one more time before the throne. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word and your instruction and your encouragement and the hope that this gives us, the the promises that are even embedded here that uh, you are with us in the difficult times and even the most difficult times of persecution. Father, we ask that you would open your word to us tonight through your Holy Spirit, that you would be pleased to use a weak mouthpiece to speak to your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm here because I flunked a logic test. Now, this goes way back in history. Like, you almost, you know, if I'm going to speak on apologetics. It would be appropriate for me to say, well, I'm here because of some great apologetic ministry, and I was convinced of the truths of Christianity through certain apologetic ministries. That's not exactly true. I would say that the instrument the Lord used loved apologetics, but it wasn't so much the apologetic arguments that got through to me. I came to WT unconverted in 1981, was spotted by certain people, and introduced to someone who you all know quite well, Dr. Arthur Johnson. And he took an interest in me, which I'm forever thankful for. And in a logic test in which I decided it was better to party the night before the test than study, and I flunked it, when he handed it back out, he looked at me. And he said, what happened? And I knew at that moment that he had an interest and a care for me, and I wanted to get to know him. And I don't remember any of the deep theological discussions we had prior to my conversion. There were many afterwards. But I do remember that he cared for me. And what happened was the Lord began to work on me and bring me to a deep place of conviction, almost despair. And I began my junior year in 1983, and I had enrolled in his philosophy of religions class. And I love to tell this. I was converted in a philosophy class in a secular university. 
Because what Dr. Johnson was doing was just explaining the different religions. We'd go through a unit, and he'd explain it. And when he got to Christianity, he explained the gospel. And I remember sitting in that classroom, finally understanding that Jesus Christ took my place on that cross and took the punishment that I deserved, and I just everything just changed. Everything just flipped for me. I did not understand that. I, understand, I understood in general that Jesus had died on the cross and he paid the price for sinners, but I didn't know he died for me. And from that time on, my life was different. And, of course, Dr. Johnson discipled me in many ways and uh, had an interest in apologetics, of course, after that. But as we look at this passage, this is the classic passage on apologetics, and the word we get apologetics from certainly comes from this passage. And some people confuse what's apologetics with what's really called polemics. And I'll get more into apologetics and what it is in a moment when we look at the word. But apologetics generally is explaining Christianity to unbelievers. Polemics is debates among believers as to what right and true doctrine is. And sometimes, as the word implies, because it comes from the Greek word for war, it can be quite a battle. And we get those confused. And Peter gives us a different picture of apologetics here that isn't so polemical. Certainly puts the truth against error, but not with an attitude of battle. Now some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight, many of you have heard before, and they're probably old hat. And I would just encourage you to, like you're listening to one of your favorite songs on the radio, just sing along and enjoy it again. Peter puts this in a certain context of suffering. He sandwiches it between the possibility of suffering and then the promise that even when we suffer for righteousness' sake, it's a blessing from God. Because everything that God gives us is good and gives us hope. Peter says that this apologetic discussion is going to flow from a certain question that may be asked or a certain slander that may be given. And the response of explaining the faith, defending the faith, comes from that. And so my basic point tonight that I want to get across is that apologetics flows from hope. We often think of apologetics as a very intellectual activity, and there's a lot of intellectual things that go along with it. But I want to see that the central thing here tonight that Peter is telling us is that apologetics flows from hope. Now I'm going to take a liberty here Perhaps you'll see it, perhaps I'm imposing a structure on this passage. But following Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, I think we're just going to look at faith, hope, and love. Faith in the sense of our faith and the faith, the Christian faith, and what it is we're trying to convince others to believe is true through apologetic efforts. The hope that inspires that and from which those apologetic activities flow and then the love in which we communicate this to others. I think that's what Peter's showing us here. So we're going to look at faith, hope, and love. First faith. As I said, it's both the faith we have in God and the faith, the objective truth of Christianity that it is we're trying to show others, persuade others of, to show them it's the truth. Now the background of this passage is fascinating. This actually comes from Isaiah. Peter is quoting out of Isaiah chapter 8. So I want us to look back there to get our bearings on what Peter is driving at here. So if you'll turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 8. 
We're going to look at verses, uh, let me see here. Yeah, we're going to, the paragraph in the ESV starts in 11, so we'll start there for context. It's 13, I think we're primarily looking at here. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong, strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now let's turn back over to Peter and see how he's using this. If you look at the language that Peter uses at the end of verse 14, in the beginning of verse 15, he says, Have no fear of them, those who persecute, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Peter is taking the passage from Isaiah that's, regard, that's speaking of the Lord of hosts of the Old Testament and giving those attributes to Christ. The first thing we certainly can draw from that is that Peter saw Christ as the Lord of the Old Testament. In fact, in Isaiah, the language used there is Lord Sabaoth, as Luther would sing of Christ in Mighty Fortress, Lord Sabaoth his name. Speaking of the Lord of hosts, the the Lord of all the angels. The one we're to regard as holy, the one we're to regard as Lord, is Christ himself. And that is to color, that is to give the basis for all of the things that we try to communicate to people. Now certainly the context in Isaiah's time and even Peter's time showed some difficulties. And I ran across a quote from one of my favorite Puritans, Richard Sibbs. I just wanted to share it with you. It's a very simple quote. This is from the 16th century, so you can see how the 16th century and the 21st century are almost alike. He said this, times are bad, God is good. Simple enough, isn't it? And that's what we're told here to think about. Don't look at all the trouble. Don't let that bother you. Don't fear what people fear. Don't think like the world thinks, but look to the Lord God. Regard him as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be the one that you look to and that you're concerned about. So when we share our faith, and people ask us questions, even simple questions, and we give responses, we're doing apologetics. When we're explaining what we believe and why we believe it, we're doing apologetics. And I believe Peter is encouraging us here to do that, remembering Christ as Lord, and keeping Him as not just a goal, but the whole atmosphere in which we communicate with people is about Jesus Christ. Now, people will talk about different things, and they'll raise various questions to Christians. One of my favorites is sometimes, you know, people just throw out dinosaurs like that's an argument. What about the dinosaurs? I love talking about dinosaurs. My mom will tell you, she's sitting back here. I had a dinosaur book when I was six years old. I love talking about dinosaurs. Sure. What about the dinosaurs? Let's talk. Then an old favorite that often gets thrown down. It's kind of like if you play spades, you know, and you throw down that ace of spades, boom. It's called the problem of evil. Why is there evil if God is good? And just throw that out like we've never thought of that. No, we struggle with that too. But I think the one that's most popular today is the claim that Christianity is exclusive, that it's the only truth 
that it says that no other religions are true, but only Christianity is true. That seems to bother today's sensitivities. And that is true. Christianity is the only truth. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So it is exclusive. But that's something we may have to answer and discuss as we talk to unbelievers. So Peter here tells us that when we give this answer, and I want to talk about the words for just a minute, then I'll I'll get into a little bit of what we might call the actual methods. He says that we're to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. A lot of times what happens when this passage is used is people will go and they'll just key in on these two words, they'll start talking about apologetics, and they'll give you all this information about apologetics that really doesn't flow from the text. Now, it is true. Peter says that we're to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We are to explain to people why Christianity is true. We're to give explanations that are logical and, but faithful to the text of why Christianity is true. And the word that's used here for that is the word defense, and that was a word that was used way before uh, Peter uses it here. It was a common word in the law courts of ancient Greece for simply making a defense, like when we say the defense rests. They would have said the apologia rests. That would have been their word for it. It was in response to what was called a categoria, which was the accusation or the indictment. Now think about the word categoria. We get the word category from it. So what that meant was they were categorizing people as criminals. You've done this. You're a criminal. And the apologia would be a defense. Or it could be any slander that was given against people as well. Aristotle talks about slander being given to people and them giving a apologia in response. It's a, it's a way to respond to the indictments, the accusations, and the slander that would be brought against them. Now here in context, it could have been slander or attacks of why do you believe this? But also notice that in that slander, something's coming out. A question. Why do you have hope? Why do you have hope? And we'll talk about that in the second point here. But I want to talk just a moment about apologetics in the traditional sense and how I think we should look at some things before we talk about hope. The first thing I wanted to bring out, in response to this idea that Christianity is the only truth, there there are two basic ways people uh, respond to that that care about religion. The first is called pluralism. The second is called inclusivism. Inclusivism is more or less what you and I might call universalism. Everybody's going to end up in heaven someday. We're all just sort of working our way there. It doesn't matter what religion you belong to. Pluralism, on the other stand, takes a little more specific tact and says each religion is equally true and it has its own contribution to the truth. Pluralism is probably more popular. You've probably seen the bumper sticker with all the religious symbols that spell out coexist. That's an example of pluralism. There's a famous pluralist by the name of John Hick who used to be a Presbyterian minister. And he gave up on a biblical faith 
and became a pluralist. I'm not exactly sure what motivated him to that. But he now believes all religions are equal. And it's interesting, the way that he avoids the gospel and the truth of the gospel is to say that the gospel is basically just a religious metaphor. It really didn't happen. It's just a way of looking at religion. It's a metaphor. It's kind of a nice word picture to help us understand reality and truth. But it's interesting what he says about Christianity if it were not a metaphor. He believes that if Christianity is what it says it is, it is the fact that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh who came to the earth, he says very clearly, then it's true. Then it's true. If that's the case, then this is God telling us who he is and what the truth is. It's interesting, isn't it, that a non-believer tells us what the truth is. So how does he avoid that? Because he can't accept Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh and living on earth and dying on a cross and rising from the dead. He doesn't want that for some reason. He, uh, perhaps he doesn't want to exclude all the others. So he says, well, that's just a metaphor. Because if it really happened, it's true. And this is the only way to God. It's an interesting fact, an interesting twist on that. My particular uh, approach to apologetics... Uh, I think is best summed up by another son of Amarillo by the name of Scott Oliphant. And this is a book called Covenantal Apologetics. If you haven't read it, I really encourage you to read it. It's a great read, very encouraging. He's got a lot of insights. He encapsulates down his approach to what he calls the ten tenets of covenantal apologetics. You can find this on the Internet just by putting in ten tenets, Scott Oliphant. It shows up at... This list shows up. I'd like to just read them to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one. I just want you to hear them because I really want to talk about the hope aspect of this as well. But I do want to spend a little time talking about what it is we're trying to defend, what it is we're trying to communicate to unbelievers. Here's the first tenet. The faith that we're defending must begin with and necessarily include the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who as God condescends to create and redeem. So just as Peter here says, sanctify Christ in your heart, Christ being the Lord of the Old Testament, there's a Trinitarian aspect to what we're trying to do. We're not just trying to say, oh, there's a God out there, but there is a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second, God's covenantal revelation is authoritative by virtue of what it is. And any covenantal Christian apologetic will necessarily stand on and utilize that authority in order to defend Christianity. In other words, we have no problem saying God said so. Because he did. And what's, what I want you to understand is people know it when we say that. They may say, well, how do you know God said so? The Bible actually says deep inside they know that he's saying so. That comes out a little later. Three, it is the truth of God's revelation together with the work of the Holy Spirit that brings about a covenantal change from the one who is in Adam to the one who is in Christ. The truth of the revelation with the work of the Holy Spirit changes us from Adam to Christ. Four, man, male and female, as image of God, is in covenant with the triune God for eternity. And five flows from that. All people know the true God and that knowledge entails covenantal obligations. This is basically just summarizing Romans chapter 1 where Paul says they suppress the truth, they've been given the truth, they're ignoring the truth, and at the end of Romans 1 he says they know they're guilty when they break the law of God and they know they deserve his wrath. 
That's what Paul tells us. And that's every human being. It may appear like they're ignorant of it, but Paul says inside, because they've been made by God in his image, they know he exists. And they know they're suppressing the truth. They don't want to admit it. So six, those who are and remain in Adam suppress the truth that they know. Those who are in Christ see the truth for what it is. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit for us to see. In my own conversion, you know, I, I was deeply convicted of sin. Like I said, almost some people were saying I was depressed, wanting me to get treatment. It was conviction. But when the Holy Spirit showed me Christ, I had my answer. And I wanted him. When people suppress the truth, and this is an interesting thing. You think about the word suppress. I have different illustrations I like to use for suppress. I'm going to leave a couple of them out. But my favorite one is if you've ever been in a swimming pool, and there's a big beach ball about this big, and you try to hold it under the water. You ever done that? Kind of hard to do, isn't it? It wants to come up all the time, and you're always trying to hold it down. That's where every unbeliever is with God. They know he's there. They know they've rebelled against him. They know they're disobedient, and they're trying with everything they have to keep that truth down in their own conscience. Seven, there is an absolute covenantal antithesis between Christian theism and any other opposing position. Thus, Christianity is true, and anything opposing it is false. I'm going to explain this just a little bit more in just a moment when I talk about the Trinity. Eight, suppression of the truth, like depravity of sin, is total but not absolute. Thus, every unbelieving position will necessarily have within it ideas, concepts, notions, and the like that it is taken and wrenched from their true Christian context. You see this when Paul speaks to the Stoics and Epicureans in Athens. You see that aspect. There were things that were true in some sense, and he was using that to communicate the gospel. Nine, the true covenantal knowledge of God in man, together with God's universal mercy, allows for persuasion in apologetics. And this is a key point. Yes, we can persuade people to believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that. But it's God who's really doing the persuading when we do. Paul is spoken of in Acts as persuading people. It says, and they were persuaded. We communicate and we try to persuade, we try to convince, we try to show them their need for Christ, the truth of Christianity, and that's what we do. And 10, every fact and experience is what it is by virtue of the covenantal, all-controlling plan and purpose of God. To put it simply, you can start with anything you want and show people the triune God exists. That's what's saying. Everything gets back to God. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that all of it reveals him. And the people of the world are suppressing that truth. Now just one little bit more about uh, the Trinity and then we'll get on to the Second point about hope. We as believers in Christ are believers in the Trinity. Our God, our understanding of God is different than any other concept of God the world has to offer. And we need to make that clear. Doug Wilson had an illustration that some people treat the Trinity like, okay, all we have as Christians, everybody has a hamburger. That's God. God's a hamburger. And we Christians just put mustard on ours and Muslims put ketchup on theirs. It's a condiment. I hope 
there aren't any vegetarians here. I don't mean to offend you, but the, the truth is closer to the other views of God are more like soy burgers, and we have the real thing, the beef, the truth. It's more like that. It's not just a condiment, but, but the real truth. The others are just facsimiles and false attempts to show that. And so when we talk about Christianity, it's always in this Trinitarian context, as Peter says here, that sanctifies Christ, that starts with Christ. We're communicating Christ, not just a general idea of some God who happens to exist. And so there's a hope that comes from this. And already, if you're a believer, you know that when you're speaking of Christ, you're speaking of hope. And so when we are in tough situations, in particular here Peter's talking about persecution, and we respond with hope, that gets people's attention. You know, I am by nature a puddle glum. If you remember the character Puddle Glum from the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, no matter how good it was going, you could always find sort of a negative way to look at it. And I'm by nature a puddle glum, and I think that that's something that's wrong with me. We have great reason for hope. And when unbelievers see that hope, it really catches their attention. Hope, you know, when we look at the, the three, faith, hope, and love, at least in my experience, we'll emphasize faith, we'll emphasize love, but not much is said about hope. I wanted to spend a little time focusing on hope tonight. Before I get into some reasons why we believers have hope, let me just make a couple of general comments about hope. My understanding of the difficulties that people face, particularly with, with depression and things of that nature, really gets back to a lack of hope. Either they've been told to put their hope in something that failed them, which a lot of us have, or they don't know the true source of hope. And we as believers, when, we, when we're struggling with things, we need hope. We need to understand our hope. We have a hope that this world cannot understand. And Wayne Mack, who teaches biblical counseling out at Master Seminary, says this, Biblical change cannot take place without hope. Whether it's change in a believer to grow, or whether it's from an unbeliever to a believer, it involves hope. I wanted to give you, I came up with 10, sort of to balance out with what I said from the apologetic side, reasons for hope from the scriptures. There's probably others. There may be better ones that I forgot. But I just wanted to give you these 10 from the scriptures to encourage your hope. The first one is God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. From Ephesians 1.4. So we've already been chosen And God's already determined us to be his forever. And that should give us great hope. 1 Peter 1.3 says that God then caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. We didn't have an understanding of hope beforehand. We couldn't find hope beforehand. But through God working in us to bring us the gospel and to show us the resurrection of Christ, he, Peter says, caused us to be born again to hope. Our being born again is to hope. We've been given hope. Hope that wasn't there to be had before. Hope we couldn't understand. But because of the resurrection of Christ, we've been born again to a living hope. Three, our faith and hope are in God who raised Christ. 1 Peter 1.21 The resurrection certainly gives us hope. That there's more than just an afterlife, but a 
certain kind of afterlife, a life of glory with Christ who was raised from the dead. And God is the one who has done this, and that gives us hope. Four, something that gives me hope quite often is what Paul tells us in Romans 5.8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we became good, not when we became righteous, but in our unrighteousness, in our ungodliness, Christ died for us to save us. Five, we have hope in the grace that's to be brought to us. When Christ comes back, there's more grace. Grace is being brought to us then. We've been given grace in Christ, and there's more grace to come. And the grace is coming to us that Christ is going to bring to us when he returns, according to 1 Peter 1.13. Romans 5.15.13 tells us that the God we worship is a God of hope. Now, that can sound just like a nice theological term, but think about it. God, the God we worship, the God we know, the God who's revealed himself to us is a God who gives hope. He's a God who's all about hope. He wants us to have hope that there is a future and that he is saving us. He's in the business of saving us. This isn't on here, but I love that passage where Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the God we worship. This is the God who loves us. This is the God who saves us. He is the God of hope. And of course, grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Grace gives us hope. I like to often bring this up. You may have heard me say it before. It's the difference between mercy and grace. They're kind of two sides of the same coin, but, but it's just a nice distinction. It helps us think about it. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, which is judgment. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, which is salvation. Now, they go together, certainly. But we've been given the gift of salvation. We've been given the gift of faith that we may trust Christ for that salvation. We have a God of grace who gives us what we do not deserve, nor could ever earn, freely and abundantly and lavishly. He's the God of hope. And then if you understand the Old Testament temple and you remember what happened when Jesus died, when the veil was torn, Hebrews brings out this fact. We have a hope that enters behind the veil. We have a hope that enters into the Holy of Holies, that we ourselves, because of Jesus Christ, can be in the very holy presence of God without fear. You know, in the Old Testament, it was often said that if you saw God, you would die. And I remember when Samson's parents saw the angel of the Lord and he was revealing to them and Samson's father, was Manoah, was afraid that they were going to uh, die. Do you remember what his wife said? We're, we're not told her name. She's Manoah's wife. We're not told her name. But what does she say? It's good theological reasoning. God would not have shown us all these wonderful things if he was going to kill us. Because he's a God who gives hope Behind the veil. And then we're told very clearly that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. We already have this union with Christ, Christ in us, and we're in Christ. And that is an eternal bond of covenant that cannot be broken. And that gives us the hope that we are going to be with him for eternity. We're going to be with him in his glory. So when persecution comes, 
as daunting as that may seem, and I hope all of us kind of step back and say, I don't know how I'd handle that because I'm a little concerned that if we step in and say, oh, I'm ready for it, we're a lot like Peter. Remember that? But God will give us grace. And we'll show the hope we have. And then the bottom line, I didn't write, oh, here it is, 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul tells us this is the bottom line, that Jesus Christ is our hope. Jesus Christ himself is our hope and all that he means to us. If you're discouraged, if you feel like you don't have hope, let me encourage you to do one thing. Look to Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself. Understand who Christ is and what he's done, and you will gain hope. And if you're saying in your heart of hearts, I am such a sinner, I can't believe, I'd like to believe, but I can't believe that. It's so hard for me to believe that. I want to share one more quote from Richard Sibbs. It may be one of his most famous ones. But he said this, There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Christ is our hope. So next, let's look at love. And I'm seeing I've got to move on here to keep up with my time. The third thing is love and apologetics. Faith, hope, and love. Peter tells us how to go about this. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. That's our conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's their conscience. You know, so much apologetics, and sadly, some of the Reformed apologetics that I I see is ugly. It's ugly. It's unloving. The argument goes something like this. You're stupid, so change and be like me. It's kind of the way it comes across on the Internet. And I'm like, how is that winning anybody? Just pointing out how wrong they are and how awful they are. And yes, they need to be shown their sin, but that's Peter tells us to take a different tact. There's a famous line by Cornelius Van Til about how to do apologetics. And I'll give you the English. I won't, I won't do it in Latin. But he, it basically goes like this. Be strong in substance and, and gentle in your approach. Let the truth be the substance, not your approach. It's the truth. It's the gospel itself that changes people, not our pounding our fist or calling people names or pointing out how wrong they are. See, Peter warns us here that the way that we go about doing apologetics, the way we interact with unbelievers, can be wrong such that our conscience may be bothered by it. It should bother our conscience. He says we're to do this with gentleness and respect so that we ourselves keep a good conscience. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever walked away from a conversation and go, man, I was a jerk. I must have come across like a jerk. That's what Peter's saying. Don't do that. Gentleness and respect. Show them the love of Christ. Show them the hope that you have. Let me give you a cross-reference on this. The very, very important passage to me. It's over in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 20 to 26. Paul says something very similar to what Peter's saying here. Gives us a little more insight. I think this has both to do with apologetics and polemics. In other words, in dealing with unbelievers and then the quarrels that we believers sometimes get into as well. 
He says this to Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There it is again. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Yes, I believe we persuade people, but it's not my ability that persuades them. It's God who does the ultimate persuading. It's God who grants them repentance. It's God who shows them the knowledge of the truth. It's God who shows them what they need to see. It just comes through my words. And when I know that, it's a lot easier to be gentle. It's a lot easier to show respect to people and let the truth be the substance. Let the truth be the strength. And let my words be gentle. Because if I don't, Peter implies that there's something wrong with how I'm going about it. And then he says this might have an effect on their conscience, which is interesting. He says that when we act this way, when we don't lose our cool, when we don't use names or slander ourselves or point out ignorance or things like that in an unloving way, he says, look what, it sa- look what he says happens. That when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Their conscience may start affecting them. And let me tell you something. When an unbeliever's conscience kicks in, the Holy Spirit's at work. The Holy Spirit's pointing out their need, their, their, their sin and their lack of righteousness. And it's a, it's a step in the right direction towards them becoming a believer. Now, I'm going to tell you a story here. It's more of a polemics story than an apologetic story, but I think it it illustrates the point. And here's the sad fact of the story. I'm the hero of the story. I hate telling this because I'm the hero of the story. In one sense, and I really hate telling you, but but I it's a place where I really tried to put this into practice, and it's 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 kind of humorous in some ways. I was at a homeschool debate tournament. I'm a debate coach on the side too. I was at a homeschool debate tournament, and there were some of us men sitting around, and one brother was talking, one of the dads was talking about a church he'd visited that was a reformed church, and he was just railing on this reformed church and how, you know, the doctrine was bad, the people were bad, and all this stuff. And he was, he was explaining all of his objections to Reformed theology and Reformed doctrine. And I'm sitting there listening, going, hmm. Then he looks at me and says, what do you think, Brad? I didn't want to have to say anything. <laughs> but he asked me what I thought. And I said, uh, I, I caught myself and I took a breath, because it would have been very easy to go in and attack all the logical problems with what he said. But I thought, I'm going to try to apply these sort of things. And I said, brother... I understand that that seemed difficult. That seemed hard, and, and perhaps these other brothers weren't exactly as loving as they should be. But let, let me tell you why I love the Reformed faith. Let me tell you what it means to me. And rather than argue about its logic, I explained its beauty. And I showed what it meant to me and how precious it was to me. A week later, that brother came and apologized to me. And he said, I'm going to start looking into that. I'm going to start looking into that. And he twice came to me and said, Brad, I'm so sorry I acted that way. I'm so sorry that I responded that way. I said, it's fine. It's fine. I was glad that it got him to start thinking. 
So I think that's the kind of thing that Peter's telling us to do. When we act in a way that they're not expecting, in a way that's gentle and respectful, it has an impact on people. Certainly on believers, as that situation, like I said, was more of a polemic situation. But unbelievers, I think Peter encourages us here too, that we can get through not only by the arguments we make, but by the way we love and the way we love them. And I think love among believers is very important in apologetics. I really do. Francis Schaeffer makes the point in the book, The Mark of the Christian, that love among believers can give the world kind of, so he even, I think, uses the word right or the, the, at least the ability to say, wait, what you believe isn't true. If we're not loving one another, no matter how good our arguments are, the world can go, but it's not true. But if we do love one another, then that has an impact on the world. And I think that means within our own congregations. And if you want a good explanation of what that means, and I'm not going to go there right now, but read Colossians 3.12 and following. The best part of that is Paul basically says, put up with each other. It means really some brass tacks love, some down-in-the-dirt love. That's what we have to have. And I also think this kind of meeting where we're getting together, because one of the questions that I know unbelievers have is, why are there so many different churches? Why are there so many different denominations? Can't you all just get along? Well, hopefully a meeting like this shows we can. And there's something deeper than our differences. And what that is, is who that is. Jesus Christ, our hope. He is... The basis for doing all this. Look down at verse 18. I'll close with this. Paul or Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He is the example for suffering, but not only that, he is the solution for suffering. He is the substitute. And that's what I understood in October of 1983 in Art Johnson's philosophy class. That Jesus Christ suffered for me, the righteous for the unrighteous. And that's what I want people to understand. Perhaps tonight you're here. And you're where I was at that time. And you're, you're trying to do everything you can for God. You think you're obeying. You're trying to be faithful. And, and you're hoping that somehow or another he'll accept you on the basis of your performance. That's where I was but it's not going to work. We are sinners. Peter tells us here, unrighteous. And the only righteousness we have is that which Christ gives us because he died for us on the cross and he rose from the grave. And you have not yet put your trust in Christ. I encourage you to do so. And if you'd like to talk further about that or if you have some questions about dinosaurs that you want to ask, I'd love to talk about that too. But most importantly... I want you to think about Jesus Christ because he is the answer to all of your questions. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time to share your word and your truth. And I pray that we would be those who would have a hope in us that would show so that others would ask us about it, that we may be able to share of the riches of Christ and see others come to trust in him, believe in him, and be saved. Father, even tonight, if there's one here who 
has not yet trusted Christ. We know it's your spirit's work to persuade them of their need for him and of his beauty and his truth. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to their need and their need for Christ and Christ himself and that they would believe in him. And Father, that we would love one another in a way that might answer some of the questions the world's asking us. Rather than saying, why are there so many? We at least show among us that the love of Christ is what rules us. We pray in his name. Amen.